Section 54 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 54. Chapter 15. The Kingdom of Italy under Odoacer and Theodoric by Maurice Dumoulin. Part 2. At the same time, Theodoric gratified the ruling passion of the Italians for games in the circus, and Enodius, the Anonymous, and Cassidorus are unanimous in praising him for reviving the gladiators. From their pages we learn that he provided shows and pantomimes, that he endeavored to shield the senators from the abusive jests of the comedians, and that he brought charioteers from Milan for the consul Felix. But, in the eyes of his contemporaries, the most striking of all Theodoric's characteristics seems to have been his taste for monuments, for making improvements at Rome and Ravenna, and for works of restoration of every kind. Such a taste, indeed, was very remarkable in a barbarian. According to the Anonymous, he was a great builder. At Ravenna, the aqueducts were restored by his order and the plan of the palace which he constructed there has been preserved for a mosaic in San Apollinare Nuovo. At Verona, also, he erected baths and an aqueduct. Cassiodorus tells us how the king sought out skilled workers in marble to complete the Basilica of Hercules, how he ordered the patrician Symmachus to restore the theater of Pompey, how he bade Artemidorus rebuild the walls of Rome, and how he desired Argolicus to repair the drains in that city. We find him, moreover, requesting Festus to send any fallen marbles from the Pincian Hill to Ravenna, and giving a portico, or piece of ground surrounded by a colonnade, to the patrician Albinus, in order that he may build houses on it. Count Sona received directions to collect broken pieces of marble in order that they might be used in wall-building while the magistrates of a tributary town were required to send to Ravenna columns and any stones from ruins that had remained unused. In fact, Enodius's statement that he rejuvenated Rome and Italy in their hideous old age by amputating their mutilated members is perfectly correct in spite of its rhetorical style. Not a few of his orders, moreover, bear witness to a care for the future, the Goths of Dertona, for instance, and of Castellum Veruca, were commanded to build fortifications. The citizens of Arles were directed to repair the towers that were falling into decay upon their walls, and the inhabitants of Feltre were ordered to build a wall around their new city. He even looked forward to his own death, building that strange mausoleum now become the Church of Santa Maria della Rotunda, whose monolithic roof is still an object of wonder. Enodius also tells us that Theodoric encouraged a revival of learning, nor is this eulogy by any means undeserved, for a real literary renaissance did in fact take place during his reign. In addition to Cassiodorus himself, to Enodius, who was at once an enthusiastic lover of literature, an orator, a poet, and a letter writer, and to Boethius, the most illustrious and popular writer of his day, Quite a number of other distinguished literary men flourished at that time. Rusticus Helpidius, for instance, the king's physician, has left a poem entitled The Blessings of Christ. Cornelius Maximianus wrote idyllic poetry, 
while Arator of Milan translated the Acts of the Apostles into two books of hexameters. The greatest poet of this period was Venantius Fortunatus, who became Bishop of Poitiers, and mention should also be made of the lawyer Epiphanius, who wrote an abridgment of the ecclesiastical histories of Socrates, Sozomen, and Theodoret. Theodoric was himself an Arian, yet he was always ready to extend his protection to the Catholic Church. Indeed, as we have already noticed, it was his policy to win over the bishops of northern Italy. Accordingly, he granted complete liberty of worship to all Catholics, while so long as papal elections were quietly conducted, as in the cases of Gelasius and Anastasius II, he took no part in them. But should a pontifical or episcopal election lead to disturbances of any kind, more especially if such disturbances were likely to end in a schism, Theodoric at once intervened in them in the character of arbitrator or judge, for he claimed to be dominator rerum, that is to say, the sovereign, responsible for the maintenance of order in the state, the successor, indeed, of the Caesars, who had always considered the task of maintaining the integrity of the faith as their most especial prerogative, and he assumed such a position at the time of the Laurentian schism. In the year 498, two priests, Laurentius and Symmachus, had been simultaneously elected by rival parties to the Roman see. As neither prelate was willing to resign his claim to profit by the election, the dispute was referred to the Gothic king, who decided that whichever candidate had obtained a majority of votes should be proclaimed bishop of Rome. This condition being fulfilled by Symmachus, he was accordingly recognized as pope while Laurentius was given the bishopric of Nuceria as a compensation. By this arrangement, peace, it was believed, was again established, and in the year 500, Theodoric paid a visit to Rome, where he was enthusiastically received by Pope, Senate, and people. But the schism was by no means at an end. On the contrary, the enemies of Symmachus lost no time in renewing their attack with redoubled vigor, and accusations of adultery, of alienating church property, and of celebrating Easter on the wrong date, were successively brought against the Pope. Theodoric summoned the accused pontiff to appear before him, and when Symmachus refused to comply with this command, the case was referred to an assembly over which Peter of Altinum presided as visitor. No less than five synods were convoked for the purpose of settling this question, and it was eventually terminated by the acquittal and rehabilitation of Symmachus. The debates held in these ecclesiastical assemblies were very stormy. The partisans on both sides appear to have been equally unwilling to give way, nor did they scruple to promote their cause by exciting riots in the streets or by slanderous libels. Both parties, indeed, seem to have been mainly occupied with justifying themselves in Theodoric's eyes in order that they might obtain his support. In fact, from the Second Synod onwards, the friends of Laurentius adopted the tactics of attempting to prove that Symmachus and his adherents had disobeyed the orders of the king. In every phase of this controversy, so full of information respecting the relations of church and state at that period, Theodoric, it will be seen, occupies an important place. In Rome, troubles were temporarily smoothed over by his presence, while his departure, on the other hand, proved the signal for a fresh outbreak. Appeals for a peaceful settlement, expressed with increasing vigor and mingled with reproofs of increasing sternness, fill his letters at this time. 
when the hostile parties, unable to come to any decision on their own account, referred the question to their sovereign, he reminded them of their duty in the following severe words, We order you to decide this matter which is of God, and which we have confided to your care, as it seems good to you. Do not expect any judgment from us, for it is your duty to settle this question. Later, as a verdict still failed to make its appearance, he writes again, I order you to obey the command of God. And this time he was obeyed. The fact that Theodoric was himself an Arian never seems to have limited his influence in any way during this long quarrel, so celebrated in the history of the church. His prerogative as king gave him a legitimate authority in ecclesiastical matters, nor does that authority ever appear to have been called in question on the ground that he was a heretic. On the contrary, we find him giving his sanction to canons and decrees exactly in the same manner as his predecessors had done in the days of the dual empire. But, though his words were sometimes haughty and peremptory, he was careful not to impose his own will in any matters concerning faith or discipline. Indeed, the most extreme action that can be laid to his charge is the introduction into the Roman synods of two Gothic functionaries, Gudilla and Bedkolfus, for the purpose of seeing that his instructions were not neglected. A similar wise impartiality, mingled with firmness, distinguished his dealings with the clergy. When a priest named Aurelianus was fraudulently deprived of a portion of his inheritance, restitution was made to him by order of the king. He assisted the churches to recover their endowments. He appreciated good priests and did them honor. Occasionally, indeed, he deposed a bishop for a time, on account of some action having been brought against him, but he always had him reinstated in his see as soon as he had proved his innocence. When he desired to give some compensation to the inhabitants of a country over which his troops had marched, he placed the matter in the hands of Bishop Severus, because that prelate was known to estimate damages fairly. And when a dispute arose between the clergy and the town of Sarsena, he ordered the case to be tried in the bishop's court, unless the prelate himself should prefer to refer it to the king's tribunal. Finally, he made it a rule that ecclesiastical cases were only to be tried before ecclesiastical judges. The foreign policy of Theodoric was conducted in the same masterly manner as his home government, or his dealings with the church. He appears to have exercised a kind of protectorate over the barbarian tribes upon his frontiers, especially over those of the Arian persuasion, nor did he hesitate to impose his will upon them if necessary by force of arms. As he had only daughters, he was obliged to consider the question of his successor, and the marriages which he arranged for his children or other relations were accordingly planned with a view to procuring political alliances. Of his daughters, the eldest, Aravagni, was married to Alaric, king of the Visigoths. The second, Theodegatha, became the wife of Sigismund, son of Gundabad, king of the Burgundians. And the third, Amalasuntha, was given in marriage to one of Theodoric's own race, the Amal Eutharic. Other alliances were formed by the marriage of his sister, Amalafrida, to Thrasimund, king of the Vandals, and another sister, Amalaberga, to Hermanfred, king of the Thuringians, while Theodoric himself wedded Childeric's daughter, Autofleda, the sister of Clovis. These alliances were all made with the definite object of extending Theodoric's sphere of action. Sic per circuitum placuit omnibus gentibus, says the anonymous, 
But when, as for example in the case of the Franks, they failed to attain the end desired by the king, they were never permitted to hamper schemes of an entirely contrary nature. A simple enumeration of Theodoric's wars is alone sufficient to prove the firmness of his will. When he found that Noricum and Pannonia, two provinces on the Italian frontier, were not to be trusted, he attacked and killed a chieftain of freebooters named Mundo in the former province. As the emperor Anastasius was supporting Mundo and had recently dispatched a fleet to plunder on the coasts of Calabria and Apulia, such an attack gave Theodoric an opportunity of asserting his independence. Moreover, in order to render his demonstration even more effective, he collected a fleet of his own, which he sent to cruise in the Adriatic. At the same time, he took Pannonia from the Jepid king Traceric, and thus effectively secured his northeastern frontiers. Those on the northwest next engaged his attention, and here he protected the Alemanni from the attacks of Clovis, and eventually settled them in the province of Raetia. Finally, he took advantage of the wars between the Franks and the Burgundians to secure the passes of the Grayan Alps. Theodoric had striven to prevent hostilities from breaking out between the Franks and the Visigoths, but after Alaric's death at the Battle of Bouille, 507, he found himself obliged to take the latter people under his own protection. In the war that ensued, Ibas, one of his generals, defeated the eldest son of Clovis near Arles, 511, took possession of Provence, secured Septimania for the Visigoths, and established Amalric in Spain. Among more distant nations, we find the Esthonians on the shore of the Baltic paying him a tribute of amber, while the deposed prince of Scandinavia found a refuge at his court. History, as may be seen from these events, fully corroborates the legends in which Theodoric is represented as a protector of barbarian interests and chief patron of the Teutonic races. In the Nibelungenlied, for instance, we find him occupying a distinguished place under the name of Dietrich of Bern, Theodoric of Verona. At the time of his death, his dominions included Italy, Sicily, Dalmatia, Noricum, the greater part of what is now Hungary, the two Raetias, Tyrol and the Grissons, Lower Germany, as far north as Ulm, and Provence. Indeed, if his supremacy over the Goths in Spain be also taken into account, it will be seen that he had succeeded in re-establishing the ancient Western Empire for his own benefit, with the exceptions of Africa, Britain, and two-thirds of Gaul. So far as we have examined it, Theodoric's government has been found invariably broad-minded and liberal, but it was destined to undergo a complete change during the latter years of his reign. Whether this change was a consequence of a relapse into barbarism, or whether, as seems more probable, it must be attributed to the persecution under which the Aryans were suffering in every part of the empire, is not easy to determine, for no definite information on this point is to be found in any of the texts. In any case, however, there can be no doubt that it was the religious question that produced this complete change of policy. On this point, the anonymous is perfectly clear, and if we disregard the severity and the cruelty of his punishments— and at the same time make due allowance for the intrigues of the Byzantine court and of the church itself, the precise nature of which cannot be determined, it does not appear that the king was himself to blame. Footnote. The following saying of Theodoric's should not be forgotten. We cannot impose a religion by force, since no one can be compelled to believe against his will. End of footnote. 
During his reign, we find the Jews enjoying an extraordinary amount of protection. And in one of his edicts, he testifies with what obedience this people had accepted the legal position assigned to them by the Roman law. His son-in-law, Eutharic, however, appears to have been addicted to persecution, and during his consulship, the Christians of Ravenna made an attempt to force all the Jews in their city to submit to the rite of baptism. As the Jews refused to comply, the Christians flung them into the water, and in spite of the king's decrees and the orders of Bishop Peter, attacked and set fire to the synagogues. Upon this, the Jews complained to the king at Verona, who ordered the Christians to rebuild the synagogues at their own expense. This command was carried out, but not before a certain amount of disturbance had aroused Theodoric's suspicions, and in consequence, the inhabitants of Ravenna were forbidden to carry arms of any kind, even the smallest knife being prohibited. While these events were in progress in the year 523, the Emperor Justin prescribed Arianism throughout the empire. Such an action was a direct menace to the Goths, and Theodoric felt it very acutely. The painful impression which it produced on him was probably much increased by the fact that Symmachus's successors in the papal chair had not been as tolerant as their predecessor, while one of them in particular, John I, had shown a most bitter enmity towards heresy. We have no certain knowledge as to whether the Senate was in sympathy with Theodoric on this occasion, or whether it approved of Justin's measure, but the most probable theory seems to be that the Curia was on Justin's side, and that Theodoric, moreover, was aware that this was the case. At any rate, when the senator Albinus was denounced by Cyprian for carrying on intrigues with Byzantium, the accusation found ready credence at court. The Anonymous declares, besides, that the king was angry with the Romans, and it is difficult to see why he should have been thus angry unless the Romans had been approving of Justin's religious decrees. On the other hand, if any plot had existed in the real sense of the term, it is not probable that such a man as Boethius, the master of the offices, that is to say, one of the chief officers of the crown, would have endeavored to shield Albinus by saying, Cyprian's accusation is false, but if Albinus has written to Constantinople, he has done so with my consent and with that of the whole Senate. He might perhaps have spoken in such a manner for the purpose of expressing his own and his colleagues' approval of a religious decree promulgated by a sovereign to whom they owed allegiance. Boethius, indeed, had himself just published a work against Arianism entitled De Trinitate, but it does not seem likely that he would have talked in this fashion had a conspiracy really been brewing. In any case, he was at once thrown into prison and is said to have composed his work De Consolazione while in captivity. In the end, after a brief trial, he was put to death with every refinement of cruelty, while not long afterwards his father-in-law Symmachus met with a similar fate. Theodoric, indeed, understood very well that his whole life work was likely to be compromised by this readiness on the part of his subjects to accept Justin's edict. For what would become of his authority if it became the fashion to criticize him on account of his faith? It was in the hope of finding some remedy for this situation that he summoned Pope John to Ravenna, and from thence dispatched him, accompanied by five bishops and four senators, on an embassy to Constantinople. The king charged this mission, among other things, with the task of requiring the emperor to reinstate the outcast Arians within the pale of the church. But the emperor, 
though willing enough to make concessions on any other subject, would concede nothing to the Arians, and the mission was forced to leave Constantinople without obtaining any redress on this point. As for Pope John, he died almost immediately after his return to Italy, and as his biographers tell us that he worked numerous miracles after his death, we may conclude that the sectarian quarrel must have been very acute. The failure of this embassy made Theodoric so furious that he allowed an edict to be published during the consulship of Olibrius by Symmachus, the chief official in the Scolae, which stated that all Catholics were to be ejected from their churches on the seventh day of the Calends of September. But on the very day fixed upon by his minister for the execution of this act of banishment, the king died, apparently from an attack of dysentery, in the year 526. The Byzantine historian Procopius, though he was himself an opponent of the king's, has summed up Theodoric and his work in the following verdict, which remains true in spite of the errors committed by him during the latter years of his reign. His manner of ruling over his subjects was worthy of a great emperor, for he maintained justice, made good laws, protected his country from invasion, and gave proof of extraordinary prudence and valor. Theodoric's work was not destined to survive his death. He left a daughter, Amalasuntha, the widow of Eutheric, who was not unlike him, and who now became guardian to her son, Athalaric, to whom his grandfather had bequeathed the crown on his deathbed. She had been educated entirely on Roman lines and understood the value of her father's work, but she had to reckon with the Goths. During Theodoric's lifetime, this people had done nothing to excite attention and had lived side by side with the Romans without showing any desire to obtain the upper hand. But under the regency of a woman, we find that they soon aspired to play a more important part. Their first step was to take Athalaric from the guardianship of his mother. He died, however, in 534. Amalasuntha was now confronted once again with her former difficulties, and in the hope of overcoming them, she attempted to share the crown with Theodoric's nephew Theodahad, a man of weak and evil character. The new king's first care was to get rid of Amalasuntha, and he had her shut up on an island in the lake of Bolsina. From her prison, she appealed to Justinian for assistance. When this came to Theodahad's ears, he had her strangled. But her cry for help had not been unheeded. By the death of Anastasius, the situation at Constantinople had been completely changed. It was no longer the imperial policy to allow Italy to be governed by a vassal, more especially if that vassal were an Arian, and political and religious motives alike urged Justinian to intervene. A struggle began accordingly, which was to last from 536 to 553, which was to devastate Italy with fire and bloodshed and which ultimately opened the door for a new invasion by the Lombards. End of section 54. Recording by Colleen McMahon.